after a, a few weeks in an Asian culture, and this has been my lifestyle for the last 20 years, to spend about a month overseas, uh, you know, several weeks here, several weeks there throughout the year. Uh, after a few months in Asia, though, uh, sorry, a few weeks, listen, my body thinks it's midnight right now. I've been home 48 hours, and I'm ready to go to bed. Uh, bear with me. We'll get through it. Uh, after spending a few weeks in Asia, one of the things that's remarkable and very contrasting from your culture is uh, you'll be shocked at how much their culture is driven by family and how much of their culture operates on a motif of honor and shame. Honor and shame are two of the biggest factors in an Asian culture and in an Asian society. Uh, the worst thing that children can do in an Eastern culture is bring shame to their family. The worst thing you can do is to somehow bring shame upon your family name. I guess we all need to go watch Mulan this afternoon, and you'll be much uh, more clued in to what I'm talking about. But it's all a shame-honor culture. So let me start where I like to start, right here with uh, the big disaster, me. My youth, believe it or not, uh, is filled with hair-raising tales. I don't share them from the platform because I don't want to glorify my bad behavior. But if you think I was an angel, mm, you've misconstrued uh, that. Hair-raising tales from my youth, and I'll use one just to set up the sermon today. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I did something so profound uh, that I was suspended from school for one month as a junior in high school. You're going to come up to me after church and say, I want to know all the details. I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to glorify bad behavior. Uh, my suspension from school did not upset me too much. I saw that as a one-month vacation. I went to the park, I played tennis, I went fishing. I had a grand old time during my one-month suspension. My peers thought I was the coolest kid in high school. I mean, getting suspended for a month, that's like, yeah, way to go. You really did something unique to pull that off. But here's the part I want to talk about this morning. My parents were embarrassed. I'm going to say it a different way. My parents were ashamed by my behavior that got me kicked out of school for a month. And the suspension didn't bother me at all. It was seeing my parents shamed. That was like a dagger through the heart. Seeing their shame caused me to turn my behavior around and finish my senior year at the top of my class. Now that's enough about that. Because that's really what I want to talk about this morning is a little bit about shame. And I think you get it because if you reflect on your life, I think every person in this room could probably pull back from the archives an incident or two where you brought shame to your family. Where you did something and it wasn't about the punishment, it wasn't about the suspension, it wasn't about the, that was no big deal to you, but seeing the embarrassment on your parents' faces in front of their peers or seeing the shame that you caused your family to feel, that was your biggest punishment. 
And I bring this up, uh, and it's perhaps because we, I'll speak over here, we adults have felt this so profoundly and wish we could undo it now, that we would admonish the young people uh, and challenge the youth here not to bring shame on your family. You won't like the way it feels, trust us. Can I get a witness anywhere? Can I get a witness anywhere? That you won't like the way it feels. You may be cool for five minutes, but you won't like the way the shame feels when it hits your family. Now, not only do I want to talk about shame hitting your family, I guess the real subject I'd like to talk about this morning is don't shame your heavenly father. As part of the family of God, I just wonder how often if we went back to the archives, we might find some things in those archives where our Heavenly Father hung his head for a moment and said, you know what I'm saying, seriously, that kid of mine down there in Texas, uh, bringing shame to our family name uh, of Christian once again. And so with that in your heart and on your mind, let me make it a little more practical to you. How you present yourself matters. It does matter. A lot of times we say, it doesn't matter. You know, we live in a very individual. It does matter. And so let me say to the parents, try to keep up, would you? Don't bring shame on your children by how you look. Kids, it matters how you apply yourself in school. Don't bring shame on your parents. Apply yourself, work hard, and make your parents proud. Husbands and wives, your appearance, your style, your intellectual development as an adult matters to your spouse. Don't bring shame on your spouse. Keep growing, keep developing. Your social and your spiritual development matters to your spouse, so don't shame each other. Most of all, all of us, let's try not to bring shame on our Heavenly Father. And let me, transg- uh, let me transition to the story quickly. The story this morning in front of you is a story about shame, in particular, shaming God. I have to give you a little bit of background. When the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John... When he wrote that, there were no chapter numbers. Those were added like in the 1500s or the verse numbers in the 1500s. Those are recent additions to the text. When John wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote it as a proper literary work. Meaning, indent, paragraph, period, return, indent. It's written in paragraph form the same way you would write a literary work. It was not written with chapter numbers and verse numbers, which means they would have read John in the ancient church much differently than you and I read it. We want to read John chapter 1 is one story. John chapter 2 is a different story. John chapter 3 is a third story. That's not the way John wrote this. He wrote this to be a story with paragraphs. John is telling a story. 
about how God became king. He's not telling a story about baptism and then a separate story about Jesus in the temple and then a separate story about Jesus and Nicodemus. He's telling one running story about how Jesus became king of the world. He became God's king. And here's the story of how the kingdom of God broke out. And it has paragraphs transitioning one to the other. For example... What you know of is John chapter 1. John goes back to the beginning and presents God, Jesus as the creator. And by the end of chapter 1, John has transitioned from Jesus as creator to Jesus is here now. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I've been telling you. The kingdom of God was at hand, John the Baptist says. I've been telling you something's about to break out. It's happening right now. And there he is, right there. Behold, God's Lamb. And those are the words that John has recorded in chapter 1. When you get to chapter number 2, we discover that the setting is the Feast of Passover. This is one of the big three holy feasts. All the males have to go up to Jerusalem to appear. They take their whole families with them. Sacrifices have to be made in the temple. It's a gymongous festival that lasts for, for a week or more. The setting is Passover. It is the season when they bring all the lambs up from Bethlehem. It's the season that you're going to need thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrificial lambs being brought into the temple of God. Then John gives us the location. It's Passover setting. Location is the temple. So the scene you're about to get is Jesus in the temple. I'm reading now from John chapter number 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So Jesus made a whip out of cords, and he drove them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins and kicked over the money changers. This is a pretty aggressive scene you're seeing right now. John's presenting this aggressive Jesus. Verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Get this out of here. Well, these are sacrifices. Get them out of here. Jesus is throwing the sacrificial animals and those who sell them out of the temple. Notice his words. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Stop it. Get this out of here. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written in the Old Testament. The zeal for your house will consume me now this is a wild passage let me see if i can make sense of it for you the lamb of god identified in chapter one as jesus christ now goes up during the season of lambs to the passover to the place of the lambs in the temple where all the sacrifices are going to be made the true lamb of god is there among the millions of animal lambs The animal lambs are just uh, symbols, placeholders. They are just symbols pointing to something else. So I want you to see what John has identified as the Lamb of God standing among the animal lambs in the temple. For thousands of years, those lambs 
pointed to a lamb that would come and who would make a sacrifice that would finally make peace with God. John has already told us it's happening. It's happening right now. Now Jesus comes into the temple. The lambs, uh, lambs were mere, merely symbols pointing to Jesus who was the reality. In other words, the lambs only mean what they mean because of the Lamb of God, Jesus. They only mean anything because of Him. And what John is doing is John wants you to see that the animal sacrifices are now obsolete. They are passe. The the animal sacrifices are now anachronistic. They're outmoded. Why? Because the Lamb of God has arrived. And when the Lamb of God arrives, the old system is now over. It is now time for the new covenant to break out in Jerusalem. The kingdom of God has come on earth exactly as John the Baptist said it would happen. The Lamb of God has arrived at the place of lambs in the temple of God. John has set the context and now John introduces the protagonist and the antagonist to us. John describes for us this aggressive Jesus. This is not really a meek and mild Jesus that maybe you think of sometimes. This is Jesus cleaning house in the Father's house. This is Jesus being aggressive, but his aggression is not the conflict in the story. His aggression only serves to introduce the sharp conflict between Jesus and the temple authorities, the Jewish leaders. The conflict is going to be between two parties that have opposing claims to authority. This is what John has set you up for. Jesus comes in, he drives out the sacrifices, he's setting you up for a conflict now between two opposing parties. Each party has a claim to authority. This is the tension that's building in the story. The two parties have opposing claims. Jesus claims to speak for God. The Jewish leaders claim to speak for God. Jesus claims now to have authority in the temple. The Jewish authorities say they are the authority in the temple. Jesus says, I'm here to represent God. No, the Pharisees say, we're here to represent God. Do you see what's being set up for you? Two parties with opposing claims to authority. So what's going to happen? Can anybody anticipate what's going to happen when you have two strong parties claiming the same thing? Well, here's what's going to happen. It's an Eastern culture. It's inevitable that one party is going to be receiving honor and one party is going to be shamed. That's what's being set up for you. Two people claiming the same thing, two groups claiming the same thing. One's going to be shamed and one's going to walk away at the end of the day with their head held high saying, we won we, we are the ones who received honor today. Now, not just anybody could make a claim to honor. If someone of low status tried to claim an honor of high status that was not theirs, they would be either ignored or, or they would be laughed at or they would be discredited. But at the end, it's the same thing. They would be shamed. Let me see if I can give you something a little closer to home that you'll understand. If you were to go down to Austin, the Congress is in session right now. And if you were to go down to Austin tomorrow, 
and walk up to the Capitol steps as the representatives and the senators were moving in and out of the Capitol building. And standing on the steps of the Capitol in Austin, you got your megaphone out and you said, I want you to know that I am now the king of Texas. If you went to Austin tomorrow and claimed to be the king of Texas, the representatives and the senators that were duly elected would shame you. They would do that either by walking right past you and saying, what a crackpot, what a nut job. What, 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 what an idiot out here claiming to be the king of Texas. Or they would shame you by answering your claim and discrediting you right there in public and saying, that's right, you've been dressed down now. Take your megaphone and, and go on home. I've refuted your claim. You're, you're a nut job. Now, here's what's happened. Jesus has walked into the temple and has started acting like he's in charge. He started acting with authority. He's been baptized. He's been identified as the Messiah. He's done a miracle. He's now shown up in the temple and started acting like he's in charge of the temple. He has claimed a high honor. He has claimed to be speaking for God. Don't you get this out of here. Don't make my father's house a merchant house. He claims to be speaking for God. He claims to represent God, and he claims to have authority over God's temple. Well, the conflict is heightening now. Verse 18, then the Jews responded to him. They see his actions. They hear his words. Then the Jews respond, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? They understood he, what he was claiming, the authority he was claiming. So they said, what sign can you back this up with? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. That's his answer. Now you Christians kind of got a clue what he's saying. But when he said it, they didn't have a clue what he was saying. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. They replied, verse number 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. If it were destroyed, you think you could build it in three days? Let me read this with different inflection, okay? You think you could build it in three days? Let me do it with just different inflection. It took us 46 years to build this temple. You think you can do it in three days? Now what's happening is they said, show us a sign. Jesus said, here's the sign. Destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They respond to Jesus' answer. So the Jews said, we want a sign. Jesus says, here's your sign. And when they respond to Jesus' sign, they're saying basically, you're a nut job. You're the guy on the steps of the Capitol claiming to be the king of Texas. We find your answer preposterous. It took 46 years to build this temple complex. If it were destroyed tomorrow, you think you could rebuild it in three days? You're an idiot. There's no way. If the city of Fort Worth were destroyed, do you think you could build it back again in a year? It's going to take them 47 years to build I-35. <laughs> this is the claim. Eric Johnson, the civil engineer, walks out to 35 with a placard, stands on the overpass over here at North Terrence Parkway and says, destroy 35 and I'll build it in three days. 
Well, everybody driving by, Eric's going to shoot you the bird because they're already so frustrated that it's taken 47 years and we still don't have an I-35. No way you're going to build it in three days. Do you see the tension that's building? Jesus says, I'm, I'm in charge here. They said, no, show us a sign that you're in charge. He said, destroy it in three, uh, and I'll raise it in three days. They say, we find your answer ridiculous. We find your response to our ch- We find it preposterous. Basically, you don't have a good answer. We're the authority here. And the Jews have won the argument over Jesus. Now stay with me because this is a twist you've not been taught. Jesus loses the argument in the eyes of the world. Everyone knows that the temple authorities are the authority in the temple. They know it took 40-something years to build it. They know what they've got there and they know they're in charge. And they don't know who this Johnny-come-lately called Jesus is who's here stirring things up and making ridiculous and bold claims. Everyone knows The Jewish authorities, these Pharisees and leaders, have all the authority in the temple, and Jesus has now been publicly discredited and shamed. Show us a sign. That's not even a sign. Get out of here, man. 46 years to build, and you're going to rebuild it in three days. Now, let me remind you that John just told us on the previous page that Jesus is the living Word of God. He was in the beginning with God. That all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. We've already been told on page 1 of John that Jesus is the light and the life of humanity. We've already been told on page 1, it's one running story, not three separate stories. We've already been told on page 1 that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. John's given you the overview before he's given you the details. Now, having told you that the Son of God has come into the world, God's King, let me show you how the rejection plays out. You see how he set you up? Here's what's going to happen. Now watch it happen. Boom, 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 boom. And now chapter 2 and chapter 3 are showing you how he was rejected by his own. Christian readers are quick to catch the meaning of Jesus' words. When he, they say, offer a sign, and Jesus says, here's your sign, destroy it, and in three days, resurrection. We understand that now on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. We know exactly what Jesus was saying. At the moment he said it, nobody got what he was saying. But now we know that the ultimate proof of Jesus' authority is his resurrection on the third day. The Jews didn't see it at the time. They concluded that Jesus had not given a valid answer to reinforce his claim to authority. So they dismissed Jesus' answer as the ramblings of a lunatic. They dismissed him as having a claim that he could not substantiate. He's been publicly dishonored. Jesus has been shamed openly in the temple of God. The leaders knew it, the disciples knew it, and Jesus knew it. John, the author is so upset and embarrassed that Jesus has lost this confrontation in the temple that in your Bible now, John makes an editorial comment to defend Jesus because he's embarrassed that he lost. So here's what John says. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Well, that's an editorial comment for 40 years later. He's defending Jesus because everybody knows Jesus lost. John's saying he didn't really lose. He won the ark, but he really did lose. 
But they didn't understand that he was talking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus wasn't talking about the temple building. Jesus was talking about the real temple of God, his body. Like the animals, which were only symbols pointing to a far greater reality, the temple building in Jerusalem was just a symbol pointing to a greater reality that Jesus would come and be the temple, uh, living temple of God. And like the obsolete sacrificial lambs, the temple building is now outmoded. The temple building itself is no longer a place where God dwells. Something better has taken the place of brick and mortar buildings. God is here with us now in a living temple. Now if you've been with us for a few months, let me take you back to the study we just did. Since the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, the second temple rebuilding period, God has never lived in their building. Do you remember me teaching you about this? They rebuilt the temple, but guess what? The glory of God didn't show up. Not like in Solomon's temple. He hadn't been there for hundreds and hundreds of years now in their temple. But they've been going on through the motions of worship just as if God were there. And nobody stopped to scratch their head and say, Does anybody see something wrong? Does anybody feel disconnected from God? Here we are going through some religious rites, but doesn't feel like God's here. There's no outward sign, there's no evidence that God is among us. So John tells us now that God has shown up in Jerusalem on Temple Mount as never before. Now, I'm going to remind the cornerstone readers, listeners, listen. Temple is not building in the Bible. Now, it can be a building, but temple is code word to place where God meets with humans. That's what temple means. Where heaven and earth connect, where you can find a God hot spot, that is temple. It could be a portable tabernacle building. It could be a, a, a rigid structure, Solomon's temple. It, it could be Jesus Christ, the living temple of God, where you could connect with God. So uh, God is meeting with humanity now in the form of a living temple. Now here's the irony. Don't, don't miss this. The irony that John is presenting you with is that God has shown up in his own temple. And now God has been dressed down in his own temple. Humiliated, challenged, and shamed in his own house. By who? By people who claim to represent God. This is the irony of the Gospels. So Jesus pulls aside and gets some leather strips and some cords and sits down and makes a whip. And he begins to drive out the merchants and the animals. He's driven them all out now of the temple courtyard. Now it's Passover season, right? You've got to have a lamb and a sacrifice, right? One might wonder at this point in the story, where, where does God... Where does God expect the people to find a proper sacrifice for Passover since Jesus just emptied the place? Where does Jesus expect the people to find a sacrifice? How are they going to find a lamb? It's Passover. 
Do you see the statement that's being made right here? Those lambs don't matter anymore. Look right here. The Lamb of God is standing among you. That's exactly what's being said. The Lamb of God is on the scene, and I have now replaced the animal lambs. The Jews are selling something they don't have, the forgiveness of sins. It's not theirs to give. And yet they're selling that to the people. They are offering something they can't deliver. It is religious fraud. And Jesus shows up and attacks the sham of their religious system. Now, the story is filled with verbal jousting. There is a considerable amount of wordplay in the Greek that is lost on us in the English. When Jesus says, you've made my father's house this, he's contrasting the, the words in the sentence, father's house, merchant's house are being played against each other. You've taken Father's house and you've turned it into Merchant's house and I want to go back and get the Merchant's out of Father's house and let's turn it back into Father's house. But really, it's not Father's house at all. This is Father's house. That's really what's being happening. It's a, it's, listen, people have their categories. They've got religion all figured out. Jesus shows up and annihilates everybody's categories. That's what's happening. My Father's house. When Jesus says those words, my father's house he has made a claim to something special that's not the way the pharisees talked jesus shows up and speaks as one having authority in the house of god and says this is my father's house well, you know what the implication is if i ever showed up at my mom and dad's house i could walk right in i never i, I don't knock on the door I don't know how you deal with your parents. Maybe maybe y'all are different. I don't knock on the door when I went to my parents' house. When when my dad was alive and mom and dad lived in a separate house, I just walked right in. Is that the way you do, Garrett? Why? Because if it's your father's house, it's your house. You're welcome there. It's your family. And you're just one. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay? So when he says, my father, he's just saying, this is my place. This is my family place. Jesus is claiming to be from God. He's claiming to speak for God. He's actually claiming to be God himself. But he's going to receive nothing from his people except shame and humility. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because the psalmist told us this is how it would play out. Watch watch the psalmist right here. Psalm 69, verse 7. For I endure scorn for your sake. And shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family. I am a stranger to my own mother's children. For the zeal of your house. Wait a second. Isn't that the verse John just quoted? John has tied Psalm 69 to the story of Jesus For the disciples remembered the zeal of your house, the love for the house of God. My passion for pursuing God's house consumes me. But watch the other theme that's associated to the zeal of the house of God. Shame. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make fun of me, make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate, what's the word? They mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. 
Now this is the passage the apostles are quoting about this scene in John chapter number 2. They're saying, yeah, he had passion and drove out the money changers, but he received nothing but shame. It's Psalm 69. What's happening is in Jerusalem, their worship was not honoring God, although they claimed to be worshiping God. Through their worship, they were actually disgracing God. And now they're going to shame God face to face as they discredit Jesus, the Son of God. And you say, well, what's Jesus' response going to be to all of this? Jesus is going to absorb the shame. He's going to stand right there, God in a man's body, in the temple of God, and be dressed down by a bunch of people who don't know God. You say, what's he going to do, burn them all up? No, he's going to stand there and let them insult him. I'm humbled by that. How do you do that? Listen, when you know you're right in an argument, you won't let it go. Right, Webster? When you know you're right, you're going to keep pushing until they concede that you're right. Jesus is right and lets them shame him. You say, what does he do? Zap them all? No. He just takes the shame. Now, when they ask for a sign and he offers them a sign, his sign of authority was a conditional imperative. Uh, when I used to write code for a living, we call this an if-then-else statement. Uh, in theology, we call it a, if X happens, then Y will happen. Conditional imperative. If X happens, Y is going to happen, right? If the gospel, uh, if the temple is destroyed, resurrection in three days. If this, then that. If temple is destroyed, three days, it's going to be raised again. He's giving a conditional imperative. In the gospel stories, listen to me carefully, you from my tradition. In the gospel stories, crucifixion and resurrection are one homogenous story. Most of you come from a tradition that puts so much emphasis on the cross and the crucifixion that the resurrection is completely left in the shadows. It is the resurrection that makes the cross what it is. There were millions of Roman crosses. There were millions of Jews killed on Roman crosses. What makes Jesus' cross mean what it means is after three days, resurrection. And because of a resurrection, we know then the death and the cross mean something. And what they mean is God laid down his life for you. Atonement, redemption. We in our tradition have put so much emphasis on the cross, we forgot all about the resurrection except for one day in April. And then we bring it out and talk about it and look at it and then we put it back away and we'll preach on the cross for another uh, 51 Sundays. And what I want to say to you is it's one homogenous story. They go together. It is the resurrection that Jesus said is the proof of my authority. It makes, it'll validate everything I'm telling you. What? Destroy the temple in three days. I'll raise it again. The reader at this point is supposed to see Jesus the living temple Standing in the temple in Jerusalem, at this point, the reader is supposed to see two temples juxtaposed against each other in one scene. The temple that is gone, it's, no, it's passe, it's anachronistic, it's no longer relevant. And that's the only temple the Jews care about. And the living temple standing there in front of the temple, the one that God cares about, the one that's going to change the world, 
The one that's going to bring in the kingdom of God. The one that's going to bring in forgiveness of your sins and my sins and your parents' sins and your kids' sins and change the world forever. And nobody cares about that one. They only care about the beautiful building with all the religious symbols. Jesus is saying that one is now rendered useless in the presence of the Son of God, the King and Savior of the world. The Jews are offering people something they do not have to offer. Purification is God's business and he has no partners in that business. Everyone knows at this point in the story that Jesus' failure to give a good rebuttal to the Jews has signified that he has lost the argument. Jesus is publicly shamed. Somehow, though, the fact that Jesus stood up to the authorities caused quite a stir here in Jerusalem. His name is spreading among the people. You see that guy standing up to the Pharisees? Man, it's about time somebody stood up to the man. Who is this guy? It's Jesus. Let's give him a like. Now, that's what's happening. Because if you don't understand it in that light, you won't understand what I'm about to read. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing... And they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all people. He knows what's in us. He knows how we operate. He knows where our head is. And he did not need any testimony about mankind. No, he knows us very well. For he knew what was in each person. That's a bizarre passage. You say, what in the world's happening there? Well... We're wondering, when we read that, why Jesus is not entrusting himself to the people who are believing on his name. So let me clarify. They are not believers in the sense that you have by faith accepted Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King. They are believers that a new teacher is here that is stirring things up. They are believers that maybe a new prophet has arisen and they are giving him likes. They are fans of the brand Jesus. They have subscribed to follow Jesus. It does not mean they have put their faith in Jesus as God's king. We can hardly believe that the common people would have understood what was happening in this scene. Pharisees didn't understand it. It's hard to believe that the common people would understand what Jesus was really claiming in this moment. What they saw is, oh, here's finally, some finally, we've been waiting for this for a hundred years, somebody to stand up to those jerky Pharisees. That's what the people understood. Finally, somebody who's commoner, dressed like us, this dude from uh, Nazareth, this dude from Galilee, dressed like a common, like, he had his Levi's and his Nike Air ones, and he went right in the temple, and he just dressed down the fair. But they went at it like this. It was a big bully who. Well, the people enjoyed that. I mean, who doesn't like a good fight? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like a fight in the cafeteria, man. Everybody just like, ah, come on. And so they liked Jesus, they subscribed to Jesus, but here's how Jesus responded. Jesus rejects their publicity. He brings down his Facebook page after this, turns off his Instagram. He will not commit himself to this populist movement that is trying to get behind his name. Instead, Jesus intends to work through something called discipleship, not likes and follows. Jesus intends to build the kingdom of God through a series of real discipleship relationships. This is how he will launch the kingdom of God. 
through a group of people that he's going to build relationships, not through likes and follows and marketing campaigns. Let me see what this is like. This is like people today who go to church looking for the next exciting thing to follow. And then they follow that thing for a a while, you know, a year or two. And and then after a year or two, they drop that thing. And then there's a new thing. And then they chase that religious thing for a while. And this next religious fad for a while. And the next religious fad for a while. and, And then off to the next thing again. All the while remaining a spiritual infant with no accountability. That's exactly what's happening here. The Jews do not know the true lamb yet. They are missing the true Passover. This is the story. They are missing the true temple because entering the kingdom of God is based on a correct belief in Jesus Christ. You will not enter the kingdom of God unless you have a correct belief in Jesus Christ. And to make sure the readers are getting the point, John is now going to drive this whole story home yet again with a whole nother scene. John wants you to see the religious collapse that Israel is experiencing. So now John is going to give you the real life example of a man who epitomizes Israel's problem. His name is Nicodemus. This takes us to John chapter number 3. It is a continuation of the same story. If you keep the story in its context, then you must see the exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus as part 2 of the temple incident. It just keeps flowing right to the next paragraph. In this paragraph, Jesus challenges the entire religious system of Judaism. He's been shamed openly in the temple. And now we're about to see a private challenge between the chief Pharisee and Jesus Christ. One represents Israel and one represents God. One represents man's realm, humanity. One represents God's realm. And God and man are about to square off in a conversation right now. Jesus with Nicodemus. I'm in John 3, 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Let me tell you just a minute about Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes from an elite military family in in Israel. Researchers have discovered that the name Nicodemus is very rare among Palestinian Jews. Researchers have determined that there have only been four men named Nicodemus, from 330 B.C., 300 years before Christ, to 200 A.D., in a 500-year period of time going through the Jewish archives, they can only find four men who were named Nicodemus. And all four of those Nicodemuses came from the same family. Not surprised at that at all. They all come from the Ben-Gurion family, a name you might be familiar with. They are a family of military heroes. The name Nicodemus, translated in best that we can into English, means conqueror of the people. They are a group of military heroes, a family of generals. The first Nicodemus was a famous general that fought and defended Israel. This Nicodemus we're talking about is both a religious elite and a social elite He is wealthy, he has honor, he is influential. Let me say it a different way to you. The Nicodemus you're being presented with in John chapter number 3 is the ultimate representation of the best man Israel could put forward. If you said to Israel, bring out your champion, here Nicodemus would come. 
He's from the best family. He has the highest education. He's wealthy. He's elite. He's influential. He's the man's man of Israel. He's Israel's champion. Israel's perfect representative is about to meet with God's ultimate representative. His name is Jesus Christ. Nicodemus opens with these remarks. I want you to read and hear these remarks dripping with sarcasm, veiled as praise. He came to Jesus at night and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we, royal we, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. For no one can perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Now, I think we've always been reading this as, oh, Nicodemus is so respectful. Nicodemus is being a butt. Nicodemus is a wealthy elite of the elite, and he's talking to a Jewish peasant who makes kitchen tables out of wood. And the man who makes kitchen tables out of wood has claimed to be the son of God and the authority in the temple. Five minutes ago, they had a confrontation, and he was shamed in the temple. Now Nicodemus comes to the place where Jesus is staying, and they're going to go round two. They're going to go round two in private now. And so Nicodemus comes to him and says with sarcasm, tongue-in-cheek, dripping with disdain, an elite addressing a peasant. Rabbi, rabbi is the term in Israel for professional teacher, professor, but higher than professor because it's like religious professor. It's like, you know, Ph.D. of of the Bible. When he calls Jesus that, he doesn't think Jesus is like the leading Bible professor in Israel. Rabbi, it's being said as an insult. Rabbi, we we know you are from God. When, When Nicodemus says from God, he's hearkening back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Because in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses told Israel, be watching for a teacher to come in the future. And when that teacher comes, Deuteronomy 18, 15, if you guys have it, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. That's what Moses said. Nicodemus has gone back to the Old Testament to mock Jesus, and he says, I suppose, Dr. Jesus that you are the one Moses told us would come. And we should all stop what we're doing and listen to you. Because after all, you're here to represent God to us. We who have all the education and the knowledge, you've been what, making kitchen tables? Yes, please school us on what the Word of God says and how the temple works. Yes, please, please educate us, Mr. Big Shot. Listen, it, it played out something like this. He's saying, well, Mr. Big Shot teacher, I suppose you're the one Moses sent from. Let me tell you what. We, royal we, we are not buying it. You're a fraud. What's your angle? What's your scheme? Why are you trying to turn the people against our authority? Nicodemus and Jesus have now engaged in a verbal contest. What you're about to read is combative hyperbole. That's what these verses are. Where Nicodemus is challenging Jesus as a teacher of religious authority. The temple incident is playing out again in private. Nicodemus claims to speak on behalf of others using the royal we. We, true leaders of Israel, have come to talk to you in the person of me. 
The shaming in the temple evidently didn't deter Jesus too much because now the religious authorities see the need to come to Jesus privately and shame him some more because he has not ceased and desist his disciple-making, kingdom-of-God-preaching activities. So the Jews have selected the ultimate Jew to come to wherever Jesus is staying in Jerusalem and knock on the door and go in the house and say, I want to dress you down a little bit more. The social... uh, uh, Challenge has been initiated. So here's Jesus' response. John 3, 3. Jesus replied, Verily, truly, very truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's Jesus' answer to Nicodemus. Jesus begins with a statement that connects him to the authority of God. Jesus is saying to the Jews' ultimate representative, nobody's even going to see the kingdom of God unless they're born again says me I'm speaking for God right now this is the verbal challenge Nicodemus says we think you're full of crap and Jesus says well here's what we think we think unless you're born again you're not going to see the kingdom of God ever period end of subject exclamation point boy now it's a verbal battle okay In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't decide who gets into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. God decides who gets into the kingdom of God. And it has nothing to do with Abrahamic DNA. Something I've been preaching about for a year. God's going to put people in his kingdom that might surprise you. All kinds of people. People of all backgrounds and colors and shapes and sizes. People of all different kinds of past behaviors. You might be shocked at who's going to be in the kingdom of God because the way you get into the kingdom of God is you receive the king of God. (laughs) And so Jesus says to the man who thinks he knows how people get to God, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now I need to pause here and say that John's doing something to you. You need to recognize he's manipulating you a little bit. John has already set up in the previous page, John chapter 1, One running conversation, John has already set you up for this conversation about being born again. And here's how John set you up for it. John chapter number 1, verse 10. Watch what John did. In chapter 1, he said, Jesus was in the world, and through him the world was made, and the world did not recognize him. He came to, uh, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of god children born not of abraham's dna not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but people who would be born how born of god John has set you up in chapter 1 for the conversation in chapter 3 that Jesus is having right now and born of god is the key phrase You're going to have to have a new birth. You're going to have to be born of God. It's not about human birth. It's not about family. It's not about Jews. It's not about American. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about family tree. It's about faith in God's Messiah. Born of God. Born. Born is a verb. Again is an adverb. Let's make it very simple, okay? Jesus said you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again the adverb can only have two possible adverbial meanings let me give them to you an adverb of time again 
Or number two, an adverb of place from above. When Jesus said you've got to be born again, it can only mean two things. Either again, adverb of time, or an adverb of place born from above. It is clear from the text that Nicodemus understands only again in time. That's all Nicodemus is understanding. Jesus has engaged in more wordplay now. Watch how clever this is. Because Jesus clearly means in the conversation both again and from above. And it is the duality of again and from above that forms the entire plot of the verbal duel in John chapter 3. I hope I haven't lost anybody. Nicodemus understands one thing. Jesus means two things. Nicodemus says, ooh, how do you get back inside your mother? Born again later, rebirth that way. Jesus is talking about being born again, yes, in time. But he also means being born from another place. It was set up in John chapter number 1 when God said, not of the hu- born of human descent, but born of God. Jesus means both things simultaneously. It's a word game they're playing. It's lost on us in the English. But this is what's happening. It's a word game. Nicodemus has a different understanding of what the kingdom of God is. Stay with me because this may be where you are this morning. Nicodemus understands the kingdom of God incorrectly. Like the tradition I come from in my Baptist tradition. We understood the kingdom of God incorrectly. We understood that the kingdom of God, Josh, comes at the end of the eschatological age. The end of the world, the kingdom of God will come, right? That is an incorrect understanding of the kingdom of God. That's Nicodemus's understanding. But the author is telling us that the kingdom of God has already arrived by John chapter number 1, 2, and 3. The author is telling us something different. He has John the Baptist already announcing that the kingdom of God is going to break out any second. Repent. Be baptized. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's imminent. Wait a second. Behold the Lamb of God. It's already happening right now. He's, I'm not worthy to unlace his shoe. This is the one. He's identified the kingdom of God is now breaking out. He's baptized. The whole story starts right there. John the Baptist has already told you the kingdom of God is breaking out. Jesus came forth preaching the gospel, help me, of the kingdom. Jesus is saying it's here. So I just want to pit your seminary professors against Jesus and John the Baptist for a minute. Both Jesus and John the Baptist have insisted that the kingdom of God is happening now. Now being uh, first century, uh, the time of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. The kingdom is inaugurated with the revealing of Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah. Nicodemus responds now with the counter question. Revealing that he doesn't understand the duality of the adverb. Watch verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. and That's just gross and weird. Nobody wants to think about all this. Nicodemus is now verbally representing Israel's condition. This is what I want you to see. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? How are you going to make this? I don't understand. 
Nicodemus is representing Israel's condition. Religious collapse. He knows nothing of what God is doing in his own generation. He knows nothing of the new birth. He knows nothing of the kingdom of God being present right now in Jerusalem. And furthermore, if he did understand the kingdom of God was there, he would not know how to enter it through the new birth. So Jesus has cut to the chase and said, you can forget all of your, you, you know, verbal duels here. If you miss the kingdom of God, you've missed everything, Nicodemus. You must be born again. So Jesus counters again, verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Now, the grammar of that statement insists that we understand born of water and spirit as uh, in relation to each other as an explanation of the statement Jesus made of what it means to be born from above. Whatever that means, born of water and spirit, it means born from above. It's, it's modifying what he has said. And to really understand it, Jesus is quoting his Old Testament. Now, there is no New Testament, so Jesus is quoting his Bible. He's in a verbal duel with a man who's supposed to have memorized most of the Old Testament. And so he goes to the book of Ezekiel, and he says, I know you don't understand. You know the book of Ezekiel, and you know where, where to find the passage I'm about to quote. You've read the passage. You think you understand the passage. But let me read the passage to you again. I'll read it for you right now. I will sprinkle clean water on you, Ezekiel 36. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And I will move you to follow my decrees. And you'll be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. And then you will be my people. And I will be your God. And let me just tell you what happens in Ezekiel 37. I can summarize in a sentence. God resurrects the valley of dry bones and constitutes a new people. Full of the spirit, full of life. So Jesus has gone back into his Bible, and he has said to this scholar, you've got to be born again. The scholar says, I don't really know what you're talking about. Jesus then starts quoting the book of Ezekiel. Here's what Jesus is saying. The new covenant has broken out the one they spoke of, the one that requires a radical cleansing and a radical spiritual renewal from above. God has come down to make it happen. And it's happening right now. But God can't be predicted and anticipated and controlled. You guys think you control God. But it's the, the working of the Spirit. It's like the wind. It's wordplay again. Wind. Pneuma. Spirit of God. Same word. It's like the wind. You can't control it. Listen, the wind is part of our experience, right? But you can't control it. It does whatever it wants to do. It blows how it blows one day from the south, by this afternoon from the west, by tonight from the north, by tomorrow from the east, snow today, shorts tomorrow. I mean, it does what it does. You, you experience it, but you can't control it. Now watch what Jesus does with that metaphor. John 3, 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again for the wind blows wherever it pleases. 
You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying. You think you've got God all figured out and put in a box? you got everything all categorized. You know how everything works. But let me tell you what has happened. God has become flesh and has dwelt among you in a living temple. Nicodemus understands now the claim that Jesus is making. Jesus is claiming to have joined two realms. God's realm, what's the word for that? Heaven. And our realm, the human realm, earth. And Jesus is claiming to be a living temple where heaven, God, is now meeting with people. A human hotspot, a a living God meeting with you. And Nicodemus is like, oh, I understand the claim you're making. I'm not sure I'm buying it. And now Jesus is about to rebuke the shame and the mockery that Nicodemus and his buddies have dished out to Jesus. Watch this. John 3.10. You're Israel's teacher? That's a title. Leading teacher in Israel. Israel's champion. I make tables for a living. You're Israel's teacher. You're the leading scholar of Israel. And you do not understand these things. Can I reword this for you so you'll really get it? Then clearly the title of Israel's teacher does not belong to you, sir. You see what's happening? This is a verbal duel. And Jesus is saying, you and your buddies mocked me and shamed me in the temple publicly, and I took it. Let me tell you, sir, you're not Israel's teacher. You're talking to the Son of God. I speak for God. When Nicodemus first addressed Jesus, he addressed Jesus with the royal we. It was arrogance. We know that thou art a man come from God. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Watch what Jesus does to Nicodemus. John 3, 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak what we know. Can I put that in modern English? When I open my mouth, it's truth. And when you open your mouth, you don't know what you're talking about. The we you represent, you guys can't find your backside with both hands. Theologically. We, we, speaking for God, we speak what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. Oh, when you start talking about God and now you start saying we've seen God, that's quite a claim, isn't it? And that's going to be his claim through the book of John, by the way. We speak what we know. And, sir, I wouldn't be opening my mouth if you don't know what you're talking about. You're making a fool of yourself even though you've shamed me today and I took it. The shame will ultimately be on you because you're talking about stuff. You're trying to sell Israel stuff you don't have to sell. It's a sham. It's a fraud. It's a joke. God showed up and you didn't even recognize him. kingdom of God is here. You claim to represent God. You don't even know the kingdom of God's here. And you don't know how to get in it. We testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony this is a verbal smackdown is what this is 
Yes, Nicodemus, you know the Bible and you know what it says, but you've drawn all the wrong conclusions about what you read. You think you got it all, but you, you, you understand it all wrong. You claim to represent God, but you don't even know God. Alcharu. Just one thought left. Here we go. Now Jesus switches seamlessly back to I from the royal we. Watch this. John 3.12. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, uh, the Son of Man. He just claimed to speak the royal we for God and now he claims again, I come from heaven. I am the Son of Man. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus understands it. He doesn't believe yet, but he understands the claim Jesus is making. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, God is here. I am God's king. I came to be your king, Nicodemus, the king you claim to have been looking for all your life. Here I am, and you do not believe me. But I'm here. And I have come down to return all that Adam lost. Namely, God's rule on planet earth. The kingdom of God. God's rule on earth. When Jesus says, I've been speaking about earthly things, he means God's kingdom coming on earth. God's rule here. The kingdom of God on earth is available through the new birth. Now let me wrap it this way. Jesus' message was not otherworldly or abstract or, you know, some, some far away ethereal type thing. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and to us this morning about what God is doing here on planet earth right now in our lifetime. And it was Jesus' authority that gives him the right to speak about earthly and heavenly things. That's his claim. I have the authority to speak about earthly and heavenly things. Let me give you a spoiler alert. By the time we get to the end of the book of Matthew, you know what Matthew will have Jesus saying? Matthew 28, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, comma, go make disciples of all nations. So that statement to Nicodemus, I have authority on heaven and earth. I have authority to speak for God. That's exactly the message. Now, let me, let, me, let me close it this way. Nicodemus has been now schooled by Jesus privately. The one who calls himself the teacher has now been the pupil for the last few minutes. And now Jesus uses the book of Numbers, which Nicodemus would know well, the writings of Moses, chapter 21, and he gives Nicodemus one last thing to think about. Jesus quotes Numbers, references Numbers 21. Let me show you the verses. John 3, 14. Just as most had lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now, I'll explain this at Easter. We'll come back to this passage, and we'll maybe look at this again. I don't have time this morning. But let me just tell you what this passage is relating to God's people rejecting God's authority, murmuring against God, rejecting God's leader, God's people rejecting God. That's what the passage is about and how it led to the serpents and the, and the cross and the snake and all of this, okay? 
Let me close it this way. Jesus pulls this out of his scripture basket and shows it to Nicodemus. And here's what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, earlier today you guys shamed me. Nicodemus, you and your buddies shamed me in front of all of Israel at the Feast of Passover. You shamed me, the one who came down from heaven to be your king. But not to worry, Nicodemus. I love you. You shamed me, but not to worry. I must lose for you to win. This is the story John wants you to get. This is the story of how God becomes king. This is the story of how the kingdom of God came on planet earth. Listen to what I'm saying. Jesus must lose for us to win. Have you ever thought about it? They shamed him. Nicodemus come to shame him around too. Say, why didn't Jesus just zap? No, he looks at Nicodemus with love and says, it's okay. You guys shamed me today, and you came to shame me again tonight. And it's okay, Nicodemus, because in order for you to be forgiven, in order for you to win, I must lose. We call this story the gospel, the good news. The good news that John wants you to hear this morning is John wants you to hear these words, Jesus lost so you could win. Do you think you could take a public shaming like Jesus is taking? So why would he do it? He lost publicly so that you could win. And that's just the beginning of what he's about to suffer. Now it is within that context that I'm going to read the next two verses and close. Because maybe you've never understood the next two verses in their context. Are you ready for them? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't really come to win all the arguments. He came to lose so you could win. He did not come to condemn the world and say, you're wrong and I'm right. He's going to let them shame him so that you can be saved through his sacrifice. Now that's powerful good news right there. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you to do this this morning. If you would just stand to your feet. Be a little easier to move around this morning. Close your eyes and let's just think about what we've heard. That was a lot, I know. But it had to be told as one story. As you settle in for the next couple of minutes of response. Here's what I want you to lock down on. Jesus lost. So you could win.
I can fill that out for you. Jesus was humiliated so that you could be a child of God and be exalted into his family. Jesus was condemned so you could be forgiven. Jesus was wounded, punished, so you could go free. This morning, if you're a child of God and you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I think at the very least, you could get on your knees this morning for a few minutes and just say, God, it's been a long time since I really thought about how you were shamed for me. And I think it would do us good this morning. We're not bringing sacrifices and offerings like that anymore. But I think an offering of gratitude would be very appropriate after a sermon like this. A word of thanks. A moment of humility. And posture does matter. So I'm going to ask those who are believers, God's really working in your heart this morning and you've been struck by the Spirit of God with what Jesus has done for you. I'm just going to ask you to get on your knees for a minute this morning. Come and kneel at an altar, make an altar of your seat and just pour your heart out to God and say, God, I clearly don't tell you enough how thankful I am. You just absorbed the shame. And God, I'm so thankful that you were so strong and you could do that. If this morning you find yourself standing here in God's house with us and we've all been there so we get this and maybe you're not born again. This was Jesus' message to Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's not about religious rituals. It's not about rites. It's not about uh, going through the motions and, and the trappings of religion. It's about a real relationship with God. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you been born again? Born of water and of spirit. A radical new birth that's going to result in transformation in your life. That happens by praying and receiving Christ as your Savior. That is the starting point. If you've never done that, I want you to slip out of your seat right now. There are several of our deacons and leaders right here on the front row. Just pull up next to one of them this morning and say, would you just pray with me? I want to just settle this matter in my heart this morning. If that's you, just step out where you are. No one's going to shame you. No one's going to point you out. You're no speeches to be made here this morning. Just if you want someone to pray with you, you just come and step up next to one of these leaders and say, hey, pray with me this morning. They know exactly how to help you. Jesus was the ultimate human being. You see that this morning, how he comported himself. Just took it because he loved you. For God so loved the world that he's going to come into the world and take this for you. Why? To restore the kingdom of God on earth. Father, hundreds and hundreds of your children are bowing before you this morning with grateful hearts. God, with, with, with hearts that are overflowing. Lord, we don't have the words. We, we feel inadequate. Thank you is not enough. 
I feel like I love you is not enough. I feel like I, I feel like the words are inadequate that I could come up with this morning, Lord. But you can see into our hearts and our minds. And you know our hearts are filled with gratitude this morning for what you did for us. Lord, to stand there and be shamed in your own house by people who claim to be representing you. Unbelievable. How you could endure that moment. Only for us to find out you did it for love. You loved us. God, thank you for that love that you've bestowed upon us, that honor that we should be called the sons and daughters of God by faith in you. God, this week, we're going to walk out these doors in a few minutes and go live our school life and our vocation life and our family life and our social life. And God, as we walk out those doors, this is my prayer for this congregation. God, may we not shame you this week. May we live in such a way that we would be a light shining in the darkness. Lord, not holier than thou, but just your people bearing witness to the truth that you are the Savior of the world. Spirit, fill us with light and life, Lord, that we might shine as we walk out these doors and bring honor and glory to you and never shame. God, we love you. Thank you for what you taught us through the word today. Help us to live it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm going to ask my, Susan, you're in the room somewhere. Let's, you and I slip. Let's you and I slip out for a minute and let Jeremy give the benediction this morning. If you're new here, I've been out for a couple of weeks, obviously. If you're new here and we haven't had a chance to meet, find, find Susan and I and, uh, in the foyer here and just come over and introduce yourself to us. We'd love, love to meet you. Church family, you're crushing it to keep up the good work, okay? Pastor Jeremy. I want to close on these words from the book of Jude. Jude, when he's speaking to the Christian church, says this, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Now, to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. I miss my spot. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And it's with these words that I leave you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.